All right, we are in Ruth. We are in Ruth, uh, Ruth 1.1, a quick series recap. We are looking at this idea of chesed. It's a Hebrew word that means steadfast, loyal love of God. Uh, if you've got that booklet, you can see the word written right there. Chesed, chesed. It's a fun word to say, so say it. I'm not backing away from it because I think our English versions sometimes uh, slant it one way or the other. So we're looking six weeks in the book of Ruth, at the idea of chesed love, God's love for us. Last week, we looked at the idea that this love of God, this chesed love of God is loyal. Uh, just as Ruth clings to Naomi in a time where she says, go away, you have death here, you have, you have nothing on this side. If you go with me, she clings with her, she weeps with her, she pursues her. And, and we see that, 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 our, that God's love is loyal that way, and he has shown that most clearly in Christ. Today, we're going to look at another aspect of that, uh, of that chesed love of God. It is uh, enduring love, that God's love endures. And I love the way we're going about this. The, um, the, uh, the idea of his love enduring is, is, is a very subtle theme in the book of Ruth. One of the, there are many tensions that happen in the book of Ruth, but one of them is this idea of God's providence, that he is, he is, he is directing the course of history, but we see a really huge showing of human activity here. So the people in the book of Ruth are doing all of the work, it seems. But God is in the background orchestrating the events to his glory. And we can see now today, uh, knowing that God's love is loyal to us, we can see that his love is also enduring. And we're going to hear that on the lips of someone who thinks that his love is all but enduring. It is gone, it is withheld, and it is, and it is worthless. We're going to enter into uh, what could be, what has been talked about as a uh, quote-unquote lament of Naomi. Uh, but I, I think as we look at this a little more, we'll find that it, it isn't, in fact, that, but it is something else. I want to look at Naomi's life, uh, Naomi's circumstance, Naomi's words, to understand a little bit more about how we understand God in times of suffering. There was a, uh, there was a year, uh, years ago, yeah, on NPR, there was a, a series called uh, Poverty in America. Um, and it explored the idea of poverty. Uh, and, and it did it just kind of a, a deeper level than maybe we normally uh, would go. Uh, the aspect that it took it at is kind of uh, what is, um, what is, what is the, uh, the, the humanizing, uh, value-giving, uh, uh, up, uh, just like, I don't know, it really complemented and, and, and held people in a place of poverty as sane, rational people that were in a difficult circumstance. And I, and I've not heard it talked about that way before. It was, it was fantastic. One of the things that they, uh, that they talked about is this, this report that came out. So this expert comes in and he explains this report. It blew my mind. I'm going to share some of that with you now. Um, he, uh, uh, in, in this report, he says that, uh, that, that, it's, that studies have shown that people in, uh, in a place of poverty uh, think differently than people in a place of wealth. And we say, okay. But you see, he goes way deeper than this. He says, it's not just a matter of like, oh, we're going to just end up at a different decision. He says, it's, it's, it's the way in which we process. We have logical processes that happen, but it's the way in which we make those decisions that are very logical, that are very sound with reality, but the situation itself it moves the timeline. It moves the decision and the weight of the consequences. Uh, people in a place of poverty are more prone to take risks in their decisions than are people in a place of comfort. Uh, one of the examples that, that they threw out, I thought it was really, really poignant, was, um, was, uh, was the idea of, of grocery shopping. Uh, if you have the luxury of uh, a monthly budget, 
Uh, if you have the luxury of, of going out and, and hauling off, you know, two to $500 on a monthly grocery list, you can go and find out that, reap the benefits of that, that your every meal ends up being over time. You, 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 pocket, you front the money uh, at the grocery store, and then over time, you'll see that your meals are actually less expensive uh, over time. Well, people in a place of poverty are, are thinking differently. They say, I don't have two to $500 right now. What I do have is hungry kids. And so that logical process, it's, it's, it's a real thing, $5 will get us some food at McDonald's. And so if for me, it was, it was, a, it was an amazing uh, way of thinking that just our situation can change how we process things, the urgency we put on things, the weight at certain things. Now, there may be a little bit of a black and white. I'd really encourage you to go. Poverty in America is what they, uh, is, is the NPR uh, um, series there. Uh, they, they really flesh that out a lot more. But uh, how does this all land in Ruth? I think there is something that's happening with Naomi here. Uh, along the lines of this, the similar thing that's happening. Yes, she is hungry. There's famine in the land, but it's not just that the famine is there and she's hungry. I think that Ruth, uh, or that Naomi is dealing with something that doesn't have to do with money or with food, but rather it has to deal with hope and despair. I, I really think that in the human condition, we process things differently, whether we have hope or we have despair, whether we think that the good will turn out or we, we, we know inevitably it's just going to be bad. Again, it changes the trajectory. It changes the way in which we think. And Naomi's is going to give us a very, uh, a very uh, rough, a very uh, weighty um, assessment of, of this process when you've turned to despair. And especially uh, a, a, a very tragic turn here as she, uh, as she weighs in on, on how she views a God who is, who is able but not willing. Now, I want to look at, at, at Naomi this way, uh, not just to, uh, to you know, make her seem like a horrible person. I don't, I don't want to do that. I think she's a very strong person. She believes in a lot. She has better theology than most of us. Um, but I want to look at Naomi today and, and invite you to consider your own life. I, I, I don't think that maybe most of us have had uh, multiple uh, deaths uh, very, very quick that shot us out of society according to what happens here, the first part of Ruth. But we do have smaller versions of suffering. We have, do, do have lighter uh, uh, experiences with pain. And we do, if we're honest, have some of those things that are huge in our lives. We need to learn to lament well. And the only way we will do that is by drawing near to God's enduring love. So that is, that is my push for today, is to, drive, or is to draw near to God's enduring love. We're going to look at that through three aspects. That we are to resist a withdrawal, that we are to hopefully lament, and we are to faithfully endure. Well, you can look at the text now. Uh, verse 6 through 18, we're going to see uh, this idea of resisting withdrawal. Uh, fleshed out quite a bit. I'll read, uh, I'll read at the very beginning here uh, this, first, this first account of, uh, of Naomi's plea for Ruth and Orpah to leave. Verse 6. And then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. And then I'll stop here. This is where she then begins to plead for them to go back, to return, my daughters, to turn back to your people. These are the, the words that she says over and over 
and over again. A tragic thing happens when Naomi, uh, with Naomi here in Ruth 1. She believes that God has withdrawn from her. She believes so confidently in this that she begins to withdraw from herself. Uh, and she withdraws herself from that thing that can return her from despair to hope. She withdraws from God. She withdraws from her community. She moves from, uh, she, she withdraws from the thing that could move her from despair to hope, from isolation to relationship. She withdraws from that thing that can return her from famine to fullness. What we see here in her three pleas is that she has a movement away from three specific relationships. So as we look at the text here, these three relationships are that movement from hope to despair. They come in the way of community, of God, and of self. In this time of difficulty, uh, and in many times of difficulty, uh, we we oftentimes will, will find and lean heavily on what will give us that hope. For Naomi, it's community, God, and self, and I think that's very true of many of us. So I want to kind of paint a picture up here on on, on the screen, kind of in a diagram form, and then talk about Naomi's processing and what's happening to her in her own processing of a very difficult situation. Like, I don't want to just gloss over this. Her situation is really, really difficult. She's from the land of Bethlehem. She's from the land of Bethlehem, uh, or the town of Bethlehem. Bethlehem literally means in Hebrew, house of bread. The house of bread has a famine. That's a problem. There's no food, as one commentator says. We know that we're in a serious situation when the breadbasket of Israel is without bread. There's this idea in Old Testament, uh, in the ancient Near East, which is very much what Ruth is, is in, uh, that, God, that cursing comes with God's withdrawal. Blessing is near his presence. This, this, this idea that God dwells uh, with his people and they are blessed. If there, is, if there is something bad that happens, he has moved away. Now that sounds kind of crazy, but I think in times of difficulty, we often wonder that. Where are you, God? Do you hear me? Are you answering? Do you even listen? We ask that question of distance. We still have subtle lingerings of this right practice in the ancient Near East to wonder what's going on. And according to the Bible, the time of the judges, it was awful. People were actually being punished by this. So she's right in thinking that God is punishing uh, uh, Israel and Judah and, and, and Bethlehem. So she does have that idea of God's punishment there. She's operating on that, and she's saying, if God has withdrawn from me, I'm not sure I have hope anymore. So this diagram here, we have community, God, and self. Sometimes what happens here is, is when, we, when, we, uh, when we gravitate to or from uh, these, these persons or these people, uh, in our lives, it's because they either give us hope or they give us despair. Now, I'm using logical extremes here. Uh, I don't know if it's exactly that, but somewhere along the line in that spectrum, if we paint the big spectrum of hope on one end and despair on the other, we can see that we draw towards people that give us hope in something or that they give us a despair or they don't give us as much hope or we don't think it'll work out. What question are we asking? We're asking a question from them about power and love. Is this person, is this community, is this God, am I able to help myself and whatever help I need? Am I able to? Is God able to? Is my community able to help me? The other question that we ask is love. Are they willing to help me? Is this community willing to help me? Is God willing to help me? Am I willing to help myself? And now when we see that we have hope in this, yes, they can. We gravitate. We, we, we draw into them. There's a presence that we want to have with them. 
Now, I, I wouldn't use these terms of hope and despair in there. Uh, my life group is fantastic. I love them. They're a great community. I am drawn to, I'm compelled to get closer to them because I have hope that they can help me. Now, what is that hope? We have to define that. But maybe you've been in something like a, a life group or, or a small group or, or, a, or, or a community that you, you just really didn't think that they could help you with whatever the problem is that you're, looking, that, that, that you're trying to uh, solve. You withdraw from them. And that takes us to, I need to go this way, is, uh, is despair. You may say, ah, not as helpful. That's, that's, that's maybe one, one spot. But the ultimate end of this is despair. And I say despair because that's exactly where Naomi is going to go. Now with this up here, this idea of we move towards things that have power and love and can help us and they can give us hope. And we move away from things that don't do that. Naomi is going to, we can trace her movement from hope to despair now in this text. At the first part of this, uh, of, of, of this uh, speech that she gives, or these three speeches she gives, I think we're in verse 8 now. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that, he may, that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Naomi is pushing away the community that she has. Uh, right here, she says, I mean, it sounds noble. It sounds like she's being loving. But she's asking this question of power and love. She knows that Ruth and Orpah love her. They've, they've lived together as, as widows for, for some, or they've lived together for, for some 10 years. They're now grieving the loss of their husbands, all of them together. There is love in this relationship. She doesn't, she doesn't doubt that. She says, will your love help me out of this situation? You're willing to. But are you able to? Now that they're widows and they're going back to Judah, they are going to be widowed foreigners from Moab. They don't have the power to help her out of her situation. And she says, I don't see that this can help. And she pushes them away. This is a horrible thing. I mean, Ruth keeps clinging, and we're going to see that God is providentially bringing himself into, into, uh, into Naomi through Ruth. But at this point, she says, go away, community. Now we move on and we see uh, later when they say, uh, when they weep with him, they say, no, we're still going to go with you. I'm going to skip ahead here to verse 11. Naomi then says again, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? I'm going to skip ahead here. She says, no, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. This is, and this just, one of the worst statements I've ever read in the Bible. This is the loss of hope to its, uh, to, to, its, uh, to its biggest, greatest degree. She asks the question in this time of difficulty, is God able to help me? Yes. Yes, he's very much able to help me. Is God willing to help me? No. God is against me. I don't know where you're at. Maybe you've been in this spot. Maybe, maybe you, uh, you wonder sometimes, why does everything bad happen to me? Uh, maybe you just uh, uh, are wondering why you never actually get done with all the tasks you need, and there's this subtle burden that's always on you, and you just wonder, God, when will I have that time to find rest? Maybe you're in something really thick right now. Maybe you're really working through some tough stuff. Those questions arise. I don't think she's alone in this. And the Bible goes to these places to give us a voice, to help us to understand how to rightly deal in times of difficulty. And Naomi is giving us a voice. Can my community help me? No. 
Is God willing to help me? No. This is that trajectory. Maybe you've known someone that's sunk into a depression or someone who's sunk into despair. Maybe you've done that yourself. You slowly cut off every source of good help that's there. Naomi's an example of what happens when you do that. Because then we get to the worst part of it all. I'm going to skip ahead to verse 19. We read, So the two of them went out. Ruth and Naomi went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? So basically what's happening here, she's been gone for, you know, at least 10 years. She's coming back. It's, it's, it's similar to maybe like a class reunion. You know, you get all like worked up and nervous and whatever. And like, I'm going to go back. And now everyone's going to, I'm a different person here and there. And everyone's like, hey, it's her. Is she back? Verse 20. Is this Naomi? She said to them, don't call me Naomi. Naomi means pleasant. Don't call me pleasant. She said to them, uh, uh, call me Mara. Mara means bitter. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me pleasant? When the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Ugh. She has turned from herself. She doesn't even want to be recognized as the person she was before. Something has happened to me so bad that I'm going to identify myself with my situation. Not by what Christ says about me. Not by about all the whatever people say about me that's encouraging. Not by the people who are helping me. Not by the people who are helping give me perspective of the situation. I'm going to define myself by the problem of the situation. And I'm going to let the devil turn his screws and get way into me so that I'm not going to be known as the person I was before. I am now my problem. She is in a bad, bad spot here. She has pushed away her community. She's pushed away her God, and she has now turned from herself. So we've got a little homework here to do throughout this this sermon. I want to ask the question, where are your relationships now with community, God, and self? I think we really need to take uh, an assessment of that. And you can work through it now, the rest of the service. You can write it down on the, on the notes. Um, you really need to take an assessment. We, 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 there's, there's, there's growth in areas that we measure. This is a good one to measure. Who is your community? Who is your God? Who are you? It's not questions we ask too often. Before, I, before we maybe answer those questions, I want to maybe give us a little bit more of a biblical flavor here since we are reading the Bible after all. The point of our relationships uh, is the point of everything is to glorify God. So when we answer these questions, who are these people in there? I think we should maybe ask the question a little differently. Who in your community, in your God and and of yourself, uh, who are you getting closer to that helps you get closer to God? I think that's a better question. Because I, because I, my wife and I were talking about this, because obviously when I read a diagram, she blows it apart, as she did with this one. He's so glad I talked to her. It was awful, the first one. Um, uh, but I, I told her, I said, you know what? Like, I see on, I see on the campus, you know, all the time. Uh, you get a whole bunch of people that go out to a place where people can't actually help them, nor do they want to help them. Uh, but they just want to solve that, 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 that in-the-moment problem. I mean, Saturday night, 2 a.m. on the Ped Mall, we got a lot of people looking for help. Not just a taxi. They're not going to the right spot. Those people aren't driving them to good, godly answers. Those people aren't, 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 aren't sending them to the way they need to go. 
they're not ever going to give them a lasting hope. So we need to ask a question uh, with our relationships. What relationships helped me get closer to God? And not just pull me along, but feed into me so that I can pursue God more fully. Now we can ask the question, where are you at in your relationships? Who are you moving closer to or further from? You got to do some of that, that homework on your own. That's a lifetime assessment. Naomi, however, withdraws. She doesn't get closer to anyone. She withdraws, and she goes from the way of hope to the way of despair. But we're not to go this way. This is the negative example of of Naomi. We are to uh, hopefully lament. I'm going to clarify this a little bit. with more diagrams. Um, in, verse 19, uh, in verse 19 through 22, we see this trajectory of despair played out in Naomi's bitter declaration against God. So I want to define it. Lament here is different than what Ruth, or not what Ruth, what Naomi is doing. Lament is a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. That's like the, you know, the, the dictionary definition. Is a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. I'm going to give just a little bit more to qualify it. It's a, it, it's a passionate expression of grief or sorrow of reality as it truly is. I think that needs to be there because, because if it's just a, a, an expression, then it's just kind of whatever I see and I'm just going to lament. Uh, but if, we, if we're really explaining and we're, and we're, and we're, we're, we're um, emotionally expressing reality as it is, we have to affirm two things. It, it weds together two things, that there is brokenness in this world. I mean, that's what lament's going to do. That's what bitterness is going to do. That's what complaining is going to do. But what makes it not those things and moves it towards lament is this idea that we remember that God is enduringly loving, that God's love is there, that there is hope in this. This situation is awful, but there is hope in this. Now we have lament. Now we have lament as the Bible displays it and and, and discusses it. Uh, in the article, Permission to Lament by Wesley Hill, he, he explains it this way. I think it's helpful. He says, if despair says the road has no destination, lament sounds a contrasting note. It says, I know there will be joy when I arrive at the destination. So there's that, that hope side. It says, but I'm not at the destination. And this road feels very long and hard sometimes. I think that's a great definition of lament. I know that there will be hope and there will be joy at the end of this, but right now, this is awful. That is lament. In another article uh, uh, called The Way of Lament, Christina Fox develops it this way. I think this is a very cut and dried way of defining lament. Lament is a crying out to God. Lament is asking God for help. And lament is responding to God in trust and praise. Now, this article I'll post it on the, uh, the, the Heartland Facebook. It's, it's fantastic. She cites how the Psalms do this. And the Psalms are just fantastic. There's, there's a whole genre within the Psalms called lament Psalms. And it's basically the psalmist saying, life's rough. God help. I mean, it gives us this language crying out to God. It gives us even to, to the level of language of saying like, God, why do you not hear? I think one of the Psalms even says, do you delight in withholding your love from me? Like there's some really intense stuff in the Psalms that, say, that, that give us the ability to speak those words to God rightly because we see some kind of turn in these laments, that there's hope, that there's resolve. Crying out to God, asking 
God for help and responding in trust and praise. If you have not done that in your times of difficulty, in your suffering, in your pain, in your inconveniences, you're not lamenting. You're doing something different. You're complaining. You're, you're bitter. You're, you're doing something that's not glorifying to God, and it's not ultimately going to remind you of the solution or solve your problem. It's just a waste of words of negativity. So I want to assess Naomi, what she says here in this framework. Naomi has lost this hope. Naomi is in the place of despair. And without hope, we're prone to wander back to bitterness. Rather than crying out to God, Naomi cries out against God. She says the name of God, uh, what is it, four times. She says uh, here in verse 20, she says, uh, For the Almighty has dealt with me. The Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. The Lord is the name of God. I am. It is, it, he is the God. He is the sovereign God above all. But it's curious that she uses the word almighty. She's speaking to us the theology that lets us know she understands God is almighty. He is El Shaddai. He is the, 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 the king, the God of the angel armies, if you want to go that way. Uh, he is the God who fights the wars and is victorious. But this God has actually turned his spear towards me. The almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. The Almighty has brought calamity on me. Is God able? Yeah, he's almighty. Is God willing? No, he's, he's against me, very much so. But Ruth is clinging to you. That's the irony of this. Ruth is clinging to you. You're going back to, if you read the rest of this, like you can't not laugh at, at Naomi at this. Like you, you didn't read the rest of Ruth, did you, Naomi? This turns really well for you. Like this gets... Awesome. People credit you to the line of David. Like, this is, this is a big deal. She doesn't see it. Naomi cries out against God. She has no perspective. Asking God for help. Naomi, uh, Naomi doesn't lament. Naomi accuses God of withheld love. He says in verse 8, May God, to Orpah and Ruth, he says, May God chesed you. May he deal kindly with you as you have dealt kindly. She knows that he will deal kindly with whom he chooses. But he says, no, but he, he's not done that here. Instead of asking for God, uh, God for help, she accuses God of hurt. And rather than responding in trust and praise, Naomi returns to bitterness. The irony of it all is that God's enduring love is actively present with Naomi regardless of her view of her words and her actions. I mean, I liken this almost to a, to, a, to a screaming, kicking kid who doesn't know that what you're going to is actually a good thing and they just want to resist and throw a fit. And it's that, that passionate, loving father who just hugs and says, we're just going to do this. And you'll see in the end, but I'm there, even though you are throwing everything at me. I have a good intention for you. It's easy to not lament. It's easy to think we're lamenting in the week. Whether we have a huge deal, a, a huge situation like her. I mean, hers is, is, is massive. Or it's just subtle inconveniences. I mean, as a parent of three young girls, I have a lot of opportunities every day to lament. Um, I don't take those. I grumble. Because I don't look at this as a joy. 
in my own selfishness, I turn in. I push everything away and I say, what is this season, God? Can you make it speed up a little faster till when they're all like praising me and doing awesome things and we get all the accolades? Can, 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 can you girls just go away for a while? Can, can, can I be better at this? I don't think so. Not right now. I just want to punch the wall. You know, like there are times where that I, don't, I could turn to lament, but I don't. There are times as the lead pastor of a church in a transition that I could take the opportunity to lament. Now, I don't do that part on the microphone. That's a bad idea professionally. But to my wife, she hears me choose not to lament often. This is awful. I don't want to do this. Those kind of things. I don't know what I'm doing. You know, those kind of things. We do that in the confines of our home. It's not a public thing that makes it lament. It's in your heart. We have the opportunity to lament and say, yeah, my situation isn't as ideal as I maybe would have designed it. However, God is enduringly loving to me. And he's there and I have hope and I need to figure out how to move ahead. The irony of it all with my own lamenting or or bitterness is that God's enduring love is actively present even when I have bad, not God-honoring words or a bad, not God-honoring view or I do things that do not show that I trust in God's love. But what he moves us to in times of real lament is that we are to faithfully endure. The, The way that we work through this life, this broken world with the hope of Christ is that we resist withdrawal, that we hopefully lament, and that we faithfully endure. I don't know where you are at this moment in your journey. I may not know where you're suffering or what you're suffering. I don't know what you're preoccupied with, what you're worrying about, what you're annoyed with, what's going through your mind over and over and over again. I may not know that the, the people that make up your support network. I don't know the quality of the people in your support network, nor do I really need to know all of that. I may not know your past faith, and if you had a rough history of faith, or, or you just had bad expressions of church, or you heard bad teaching and can't shake it. I don't know those things, but the thing that I do know now is that we all need much more of Christ in every season of life. And that's how we faithfully endure and because our text today is, uh, is, is saturated in this idea of lament and bitterness, I want to look at this through the lens of crisis, how we see Christ more clearly in times of crisis. So I want to look at it three ways. In preparing for crisis, in living in crisis, and in caring for others through crisis. I think this is highly uh, the, the application point that I get from the way that Naomi and Ruth interact and, and what needs to take place for Christ to be known in any season of life. In 1 Corinthians 15, we get this expression of hope. We, uh, Christ, uh, uh, the Apostle Paul, reflecting on the resurrection, he says that there is a hope that goes beyond today. He asks the question, he says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. Sometimes we just roll through this and be like, Oh, if we have hope in Christ, then we're, then we're to be pitied. He clarifies it and says, in this life only. We're not doing this Christian thing right now so that we can just have a nice worldview until we die. 
Our hope is not just until the grave. Our hope is forever. That's a different hope than we get oftentimes from our community or false gods or from self-help. That we can have a hope in this season. I can drop these pounds and we'll be good. I can, I can, I can get my budget. I can, I can kick my debt and we'll be good. If we have hope in this life, we can go for some of those things, I guess. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. For as, by a man came, uh, for as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. He goes on to say, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. Christ's power and the hope we should have in that is because he can and has conquered death and every authority and every ruler. And he has done it not now, not simply for now, but forever. If you're going to put your hope in something, if you're going to put your hope in a resolve to a situation, your situation might not resolve, but God and Christ will always be good and always be ruler, and always be loving, and lovingly endure you until the end of eternity. The idea of the resurrection breathes that hope beyond today into us. That Christ rose from the dead and will conquer our own death means that we can live forever through faith in him, in the hope, in the blessing, in the presence of him. And that's the whole trajectory right now. We're very far away from God in Ruth. Right now in 2018, we're very far away from God. One day in the end, we will be there with his blessing. That helps us to prepare for his, uh, for his, uh, his coming. That helps us to prepare for crisis. We're a very crisis response culture. We want to deal with the situation now uh, without ever looking at the root cause of that. Our root cause is the same as Naomi's. We don't have hope in God in the right ways. We don't have hope in his love in the right ways. I think of it this way. If, if, if the fruit of that faith is, is hope, then we need to get to work. Our task, biblically speaking, is to water the roots daily so that we have a strong base when the storms come and blow against us. It doesn't, it feels pretty mundane to do the spiritual disciplines like, like prayer, like a community, like a scripture, um, uh, giving, uh, service. Those things just seem like, well, why would we do this? It's just a church thing. We check a box. They seem pretty mundane. They're about as mundane as watering the roots of a tree, right? Well, what happens when you water the roots of a tree? What happens when you water the roots of your faith over time? You may not see something that day that pops and it says, glory be to God, burning bush. This is amazing. But your roots get deeper so you can trust him more. Now, I'm not a person who's going to hit you across the head and say, you got to read your Bible every day. I am a person who's going to scream at you on a microphone and say, why wouldn't you water the roots of your faith every day? So that when the storms come, we can be prepared for it. We organize our services uh, every Sunday this way, preparing for crisis. We go through confession. We go through the Lord's Prayer. We go through uh, uh, the Eucharist, the Thanksgiving. We go through a call and a benediction to give us those, those habits 
that in every day in life, we can more easily go to confession. We can go to thanksgiving. We can understand that we are sent by God. That's why we do what we do every uh, morning. Living in crisis, when we have that view of God, when we have that hope in Christ, we can then lament rightly and, 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 and say, this is a bad situation. My lament is not my end. There is hope that it will turn. What is the reality of Naomi's situation? Is that she understands that the Lord is powerful and the Lord has love. That should be the reality of our situation. That, we ha- that, that the Lord is powerful and that the Lord is loving. And then we can, once we understand this, turn to how we care in times of crisis. Ruth gives us that expression when dealing with Naomi. Ruth and Orpah, they lift up their voices and they weep and they go with her. They stick around in times of crisis. They stick around in times of need. And we need to be a people who do that as well. So what do we do when it comes to times of suffering? Or even if we're not in suffering, but we know that that time will come, we need to understand that in, in light of God's enduring love, that we must draw near to God's uh, enduring love, knowing that it is fully expressed in Christ. He gives us the name that we need. He gives us a God who will last and who will conquer all things. And he gives us a gift of a community, the church, that we can endure uh, endure in times of difficulty, in times of suffering, in times of grief and temptation. So my prayer is that Heartland Community Church would be a people who understand how to endure rightly because of Christ's love and example.